Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Bhumika, the host of Chani for today. And today we are going to talk to um, a much-awaited uh, author I've been wanting to host on the podcast, Dr. Sanjeev Barua. We are so, so uh, glad to have him here today. Uh, Dr. Barua is the author of a range of books on uh, Northeast India and, importantly, on the subjects of federalism, post-colonial democracy, sovereignty, conflict, ethno-nationalism, among several others. And his first published book, uh, which was in 1999, India Against Itself, redefined, I would say, the field of the studies of democracy and federalism crucially by providing scholars the impetus for studying nation, nationalism, and nationality in very new and very, very important ways. Uh, This was followed by... um, the 2005 book called Durable Disorder, where Dr. Barua turned his attention to the political economy of the conflict and the conduct of democracy with a specific attention towards claims of autonomy. In 2009, he edited a collection of essays called Beyond Counterinsurgency, which uh, very, very critically brought to bear a perspective on the study uh, an understanding of armed civil conflicts through uh, sort of a multifaceted uh, collection of essays. In 2007, uh, Post Frontier Blues, uh, it sort of was a, a study which foregrounded the transnational dimensions of a democratic agenda for the Northeast. And in 2010, Dr. Barua edited yet another reader on ethno nationalism in India which looks at the role of the state, among other things, in its interface with several such movements related to India. And uh, finally, the book that we're going to talk about today, which came out earlier this year with the Stanford University Press in 2020, in the name of the nation, India and its Northeast, is the third in what will perhaps be remembered uh, as Dr. Barua's trilogy, uh, uh, beginning with India Against Itself and Durable Disorder. Uh, um, you know, amidst sort of all the sense of uncertainty across the globe uh, as we confront afflicted demographies, conflicted states, and a looming precarity for already vulnerable populations, Dr. Barwa's work is a very useful reminder of a long-term engagement with histories and politics that coalesce to make our experiences of the present what they are. Uh, He is currently today joining me from his... uh, home in upstate New York, while I speak to himself, him, myself quarantined in in Delhi. So I'm so glad to have this opportunity. And before I sort of welcome Dr. Barua once again, I just want to say something very quickly about the book we are discussing, because as we will discover through our conversation today, the book is so broad, it's so far ranging, it has so many uh, histories, regions, politics, geographies, uh, perspectives that it evokes. I just want to give a very, very a quick um, sort of, you know, short and brief summary um, to our listeners about the book before we sort of delve into the many layers of the book itself. And if I were to describe the scope of the book very briefly, I would say it is a book about the contradictions of democracy for a region at large, a region which in the world of Dr. Barua is an artifact of a deliberate policy uh, referred to as just the North East, it constitutes the eight states of India that border Myanmar, Bangladesh, Bhutan, and the Tibetan areas of China. Um, I, I would read the book flap, perhaps for introduction, but I'll, I'll stop there. And 
Once again, Dr. Barwa, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books Network. We're so glad to have you here today. Thank you very much, Bhumika. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. So, Dr. Barwa, the first question I have for you in order to start our discussion is, is your journey to writing this book as it appears in 2020? Uh, you know, your own engagement as far as writing about the region is concerned is now over three decades old, you know, during which you have got three monographs, a couple of edited volumes and so many other pieces of writing. And on several occasions, you have explained how your engagement is not limited or anchored in a particular disciplinary approach or from what many of us know, an area studies perspective. Can you Tell us more, tell our listeners more about the milestones of this sort of three-decade-long and continuing engagement. What were the specific intellectual as well as contemporaneous prompts that directed you to engage and write in the way you have, especially in this book that we are talking about today, In the Name of the Nation, you know, which covers a terrain as broad as post-colonial India's troubled relationship with the region in your own words? Well, I suppose I'll have to be a biographical. Uh, I began teaching at Bard College at a time when uh, we probably, people like me, were preferred because we are generalist. I teach political science. I teach international relations, comparative politics, which I do. I, do, I teach much less international relations now than I did earlier. But now I have been teaching lately political economy. And I teach a, fair, a course called Nation, States, and Nationalism fairly regularly. The reason I'm saying all that is because unlike many other academics, in a way, my teaching life is separate from my writing life, if you like, right? And the way it happened is that, uh, clearly, I, as you know by now, that I grew up in that region, and yet... I, when I left the region, I didn't necessarily have an intellectual interest in the region, right? Uh, so I suppose it is not different from other peripheral areas. You leave. I came to Delhi, came to Chicago. So I was, didn't have much occasion to think about it. So then only later, uh, when I began teaching, I, things were happening in that region. I'm talking about the 1983, when I began teaching at Bard College. So that is when, if you remember, Assam movement was around, the United Liberation Front was around. So in a way, clearly I was following news. It was before the time of the internet. And then I also recall teaching classes where I had soon after, not exactly at that time, soon after I had students from Bosnia, from Hungary, teaching about nationalism. So in a way, the idea that I had nothing to say on the area I know the language of, if you like, after all, I speak SMEs, and yet I teach about those things, clearly was odd. So in a way, initially, it was just an interest to make sense of it. Why is it that a place that I remember mostly as a place where quite peaceful, nothing much happens? That, of course, is a bit of a nostalgia, I realize, in these matters. Clearly, the Naga conflict was around. But apart from the Naga conflict, there was some, nothing that major that was, that was really continuing, if you like, right? So in a way, I, the question of why is this area, which I remember as relatively peaceful, albeit nostalgically, is really having so much, you know, what the, the, the media language, insurgency, human rights violations, clearly was what made me curious. Initially, it began with just newspaper articles, really. 
right? I, I wrote in Statesman, I wrote in Telegraph, wrote in EPW. So then it became slightly more serious. I think my first articles on the subject were really in the uh, modern Asian studies. I wrote a book, uh, article called The Poetics of Nationalism. Uh, so that was about 86. So then it became uh, all of that led to a more serious interest, which, which led to my book called India Against Itself. So then after India Against Itself, that was 99, as you point out, the fact that by now you really had internet and people really, I, I didn't expect readers in various parts of the world where I suddenly was surprised. That always happens, right? You really write a book with your own concerns. I was writing just to make sense of the region, if you like. And then I was quite taken aback by the kind of reception I got from India, right? Especially Northeast India, young people were reading. Soon after that, I was invited. So clearly, all of that meant that my book had a life I wasn't quite expecting, right? Uh, so then led me to be more curious. So then I went, the, for some time, I decided to spend some time in, in the Northeast India for a long time. So in about 2003, I basically was at a center in Guwahati, uh, in that area. After that, I was in the Center for Policy Research. Uh, and in that region, uh, that, uh, that, at that point of time, I thought, India, so my first book, India Against Itself, I felt was it really a little too, too specific in a sense that I didn't say enough about, I didn't know enough rather, I shouldn't say I didn't say. I felt I didn't know enough about the Naga conflict. I didn't know enough about the Mizo, Mizo areas. I didn't know enough about the Arunachal. So I decided during this time that I will get to know those places, right? But in all of this, as I'm telling you, I really didn't start with an academic political science kind of an approach or a area studies approach because I didn't start there in terms of my books, right? As I said, my teaching life is separate from my, from my writing life. So as a result, I suppose my approach has been what in old-fashioned sense would be intellectual, right? I went wherever curiosity took me, right? And I stayed with that approach that produced that second book called Durable Disorder, as you point out. And then uh, you mentioned the other books. I won't get into that. And so throughout, I suppose, just like I guess anthropo I have now, now find that some anthropologists, when they study a particular village, maybe when they start, in a way, I feel that they actually go back to the same, same village, if you like, right? even later on in life, right? In the sense that we write about the same thing repeatedly, if you like, because we try to make sense of it through new perspectives. So in a way, my, my trajectory has been similar, if you like, and so that, and the questions that have concerned me, uh, are probably global concerns. How can one not think at this point of time what happened to decol decolonization, right? What happened to nation states? What happened to the, to the, to the dreams of 1940s, post-Second World War? Right? Clearly, those concerns shape the current book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, that's a, uh, that's a very useful recounting of your own experience for uh, listeners who may not be, you know, uh, aware of your sort of intellectual journey, so to speak. And that definitely does foreground your concerns as both scholar, as a curious uh, Assamese uh, himself to, like you say, repeatedly think and write about um, sort of a set of issues which cannot really be exhausted in in a treatment or the other. And like you say, the, the business of democracy itself is sort of a continuous and unfinished business. So in that sense, the business of your own writing um, and engagement is a continuous one. So thank you for foregrounding um, those, um, those thoughts. 
And perhaps following from that in one way, I, you know, I wanted to talk, there is, like I, like I said, when my opening sort of uh, bit was, there is so much in this book. And I really appreciate that as, um, as perhaps even a sense of introduction for a lot of people who may not have arrived at these, these questions or these concerns one way or the other. So given, given that, I wanted to uh, invite you to sort of talk a little bit more about the ways in which through your engagement in this book, but not just in book, through, through your entire engagement, have thought about question, the concept of majority. And I'll say a little bit more about that. So, you know, the fact that you've engaged with the contradiction of democracy, as you say, sort of in the perhaps the aftermath of decolonization and the various sort of de- democratic exercises, like whether it's conducting elections, negotiating claims to self-determination, the politics and consequences of sort of, you know, linguistic identities. How do you, how do you think it is useful or uh, are not even to conceptualize the idea of majority itself, given that democracy is deeply entangled with the project of majority rule? What does the experience of demographic changes, as you described for various sites and regions in the Northeast, tell us about the ways in which we can conceive majority or minority? For example, I mean, just there are so many other examples in the book, but the one that sort of comes to my mind uh, more immediately is, you know, how you describe that um the the experience or uh, of the hindu hindu bengalis in the barak valley of assam and the state of tripura do not occupy a minoritized space like the partition refugees do so can you explain this in more detail for our listeners with respect to the ideas of majority tied closely with demography and therefore the impetus to reconsider at different historical moments sort of the temporality of the idea of majority itself. What does it mean for the idea of democracy? And, you know, to sort of make it sort of uh, slightly more uh, understandable, if you can if you can think or if you have thought of any sort of comparative examples uh, for your own work uh, while in your teaching life, as you speak of, to think through these concepts of majority in connection with sort of democracy. Well, you know, I think that majority-minority, let's think of it as politics of numbers, right? Clearly, it is connected to very modern institutions. After all, when you think about the census, the 19th century institution, before the census, we never thought about who is the majority in Bengal, who is the majority in Punjab, right? So that itself tells us that majority ultimately is connected to a very modern institution like the census, Right? So clearly, when one thinks about pre modern political systems, clearly numbers are, not, are import, not important in the same way. So, in a very profound sense, then, all political systems, whether kingdoms or, or, or empires, are all not really numbers. So, in a way, it will be a little odd now to refer to the Ottoman Empire as Turkish. It's not Turkish. Empire, empire is something bigger than that, right? So in a way, tell you the politics of numbers then come later. And in a context like India, I'm quite struck, for instance, by how the entire conversation on majority minority during the partition, for instance, was really quite connected to the discussion of majority minority in the context of the League of Nations minority rights, right? After all, don't forget that, uh, that, uh, that in the whole period of early 20th century, 
when the, uh, the during the time of the collapse of Ottoman Empire, collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, collapse of the Russian Empire, all these new states that were emerging, it was in that context that you really had the language of minority, right? And League of Nations was in charge of uh, of, of, of really monitoring and supervising all kinds of minority rights agreements. So I, I, I am quite struck. It was quite striking, actually, when you look at how much Indian intellectual life was influenced by all of that, right? By you know, where they were very actively involved in something, something like say when when uh, the Sudetenland uh, controversy, right, uh, which was really the part of the Czechoslovakia Germany controversy, right? And so Gina will write about it. Lots of newspaper commentators will write about it. So clearly, majority minority in that sense is really a kind of global thing that came, if you like, right, as part of a 20th century concerns. And what is interesting, after all, when you think about it, the danger of the word minority, if you like, or majority, is that the fact that League of Nations, for League of Nations, it was the major concern. Yet, once the Second World War happened, people got very nervous about the idea of majority minority. As a result, the United Nations doesn't really talk about, they avoid the word. In fact, if you look at the UN Charter, it carefully avoids the word majority, minority. It, it talks about human rights in the sense of individual rights, right? But clearly, but in the terms of Indian thought, if you like, you can really can't separate it from that, that history, our majority minority, right? So, so, so then, once you really had democracy, clearly majority minority has a, has a, has a very particular meaning. Right, but obviously those of us who are democrats and liberals in the old-fashioned sense, we are very aware that democracy is more than just majority rule. It is really about constitutions, about ensuring minority rights. It is about ensuring that something bigger, which is the constitution and things that are embedded in a constitution, those values will shape political life and not just the majority and moments, if you like, right? But so, but what in the reality, however, as you know, in India, what is happening in recently, clearly the majoritarianism in the in the sense of a sense that what we are seeing in India now is really uh, not quite, you know, in a way it can easily become undemocratic in the in the sense of a liberal democracy, right? So that is the larger context. In the reason I use a term like minoritized space. Because what is interesting about, about this region, as you, uh, uh, since you've read the book, you would know, is that the whole experience of, say, uh, migration, right? Now, for instance, in, the, in India in the last few years, the whole discussion about citizenship amendment bill, the discussion about uh, uh, national register of citizens, the fact that all of that has a very distinct history in Northeast India, right? Meaning that it is really uh, pre-partition. Whereas I think the entire Indian discourse, especially right now, is all around the partition. Yet, when you think about the issue of migration, demographic change, the, the, the resistance, it is really a very old story. In some ways, I have argued in the book that, uh, that the, I think of the region as a settlement frontier, if you like. Right? It was, in a way, South Asia's last empty land, if you like. I hate to use the word empty land. No lands are no land is empty, right? After all, when you think about frontiers, right? It is some people's frontier, but people who live there, it is not frontier for them. So, in that sense, I think much of kind of the history of 20th century uh, Northeast India has been about asserting really this place is ours. This place is ours. Asserting asserting the that it is not really about after all migration. Then migration began with the kind of colonial idea that 
this is place has a lot of empty lands. In that sense, what is interesting about Northeast India is that really, after all, think of tea plantations. Tea plantations are really, uh, you know, almost the kind of plantations you have in other settler colonies, right? Clearly, the reason you even think about a tea plantation in 19th century is precisely because from the colonial view, there's so much empty land, you can give away, give away to European tea planters as empty lands, right? As wasteland was the word used, right? So in some ways, then the whole story of migration begins with that. And then the whole area where, you, for instance, say the, the, the current controversy about migration from East Bengal begins a little later because even the areas close to the Brahmaputra River, the floodplains, which historically were never really thought of as areas of permanent settlement, but, but clearly, when, uh, in colonial eyes, there were also sources of land revenue, right? So migration began actually to the area precisely because when the, it, it, it became very clear the jute cultivation could happen. So people who knew about jute cultivation were people in Bengal, in East Bengal. That's when migration starts, right? So what is ironical of our, about the country, current controversy is that clearly uh, in India, when they talk about the word like foreigner or Bangladeshi, they obviously mean contemporary Bangladesh, etc. Whereas the issue has such an old history and the whole how the two issues interact obviously is important. And the reason I use the word like minoritized space is because after all, given the reality of partition, it's almost unthinkable in the rest of India that any kind of a, a Hindu person who migrated from, from say, uh, what became Pakistan would be considered unwelcome, right? But on the other hand, if you look at Northeast India, given the older history, the protest against migration from East Bengal began in the 1930s, right? So in a way, even the politics of partition in an area was shaped by the controversy over migration, right? But that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is that there's a large Bangladeshi district, area called Selet, which in colonial times was one district. Now it is a number of districts. That was part of Assam. That was part of Assam. There was a select referendum. So, this is, so essentially what happens in the study of South Asia, historically, partition becomes a story of mainly Punjab and Bengal. But an important part of the partition story in Assam is that a major district on Silet, called Silet became part of Pakistan as a result of a referendum. Well, once that happened, so, so, so if you like, once it, one kind of public opinion in Assam was hoping that partition will mean migration will stop. Instead, the opposite happened. Right, because clearly now you have a huge bunch of Hindu Bengalis who also came once partition happened. So the whole partition story and the migration story, the politics of it is so distinct that you need a different language. So my language of minoritized space is just to make the point that uh, that what is important in the whole politics of minority majority is obviously not numbers, right? As we know in many other contexts, right? Clearly, you could be numerically large. Uh, or, uh, but yet you may occupy, occupy a space which is, which is really of a minority, right? So clearly, I think I, I borrow the term from African-American uh, uh, sociologists uh, who use it originally, right? Just to make, a, make the point that it is about political power and not about numbers alone, right? So, in, uh, so that in a way, uh, say, you could really be a chief minister, uh, of, of Bengal, if you like, if you are originally from East Bengal, right? Uh, so clearly you don't occupy the minority space there. But on the other hand, if you look at a partition refugee in Shillong, right, or in Arunachal Pradesh, right, clearly 
the space is not the same. They occupy, I would argue, a minoritized space, right? Which they don't occupy in Bengal. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, 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 that's very, uh, that's, that explains a lot in what uh, I was trying to ask you about the claims to minoritized space. Because in one sense, uh, perhaps a very brief follow-up to that uh, in terms of the use of, uh, it's a very interesting term, minoritized space is also, I was wondering whether you, in using that or in, in sort of mobilizing that, you were also trying to um, broaden the idea of sort of majority minority, which may which may, we may all often only understand in terms of demographic uh, trends or or you were saying enumeration or numbers game. It's also actually not just that; it also sort of claims to a certain kind of territory and topography, right? Which is very very crucial. Uh, to uh, what unfolds in the Delta Plains uh, of of the region versus sort of the hills, right? So I, I was actually reading it more also in terms of not just uh, claims to power, but also like very literal claims to to land and uh, agrarian land uh, and sort of making use of land and these very complicated, I think in one place you use the word of this thicket of land tenure relationships, right? So uh, I, I was actually also like, um, one, I was wondering if that is also the way in which you were thinking of the idea of uh, minoritized space, because it's definitely far more useful to think like that than in terms of just sort of the numbers uh, that majority and minority can actually limit a discussion to. Well, you know, in the, uh, here, this is probably a good point to bring in the way the area has been kind of governed, if you like. So in colonial times, after all, there were, in a way, indirect rule was really the word to use in much of Northeast India. So, so that you had two kinds of areas, uh, you know, at w one language was the hills and plains, another kind of a language were excluded area. Uh, so backward areas, right? They are familiar in the rest of India as well. But nevertheless, areas like, say, uh, what is now Arunachal Pradesh and parts of Nagaland, really, you really were, the, even the colonial state didn't go to some of those areas, right? Meaning that, say, if you, so if you look at it, uh, it was very clear, for instance, so I, I use in my book, uh, uh, Curzon's use of the word frontier, right? It was very clear that, uh, he he had an idea of a three-tiered frontier. So so beyond the particular point, you barely control, right? So in a way, when you think about area like that, that was also part of Northeast India, became part of India. So in some ways, what is striking to me is when you think about the region's post-colonial history is that we really can't, we can't, we, we have to take our colonial geography very seriously or imperial geography rather, right? The fact that not every part of India was administered. Right? And within Northeast India, Assam, the area of tea plantations, was what was called directory rule. It may have been administered. It may be like rest of India. But certainly not much of the rest of Northeast India. Right, So, so that areas like what is now Arunachal Pradesh, uh, Meghalaya, Mizoram, where, right? where, and then when you bring in Manipur and Tripura, these were native states or princely states. So all of these are incredibly complex set of institutions by which the area was governed in colonial times. So its post-colonial transition has to be more complicated, right? Has to be the story has to be complex. So the reason I I sort of I, I make a big deal out of the category northeast, if you like, because in a way it is quite striking that after all, when you think about words like 
Far East, Middle East. These are all colonial era terms, right? Because after all, uh, for people living in the Far East, the area doesn't look far, doesn't look east, right? So clearly, where, so clearly the fact that there is some people's way of thinking, right? In fact, historically, when you look at even, for instance, our, since I'm sure both of us are associated with the Asian Studies Association, the journal was called Far Eastern Quarterly at one time. Right? Can they change to Journal of Asian Studies? Right? When you think about that, the idea that a part of India would be called Northeast India would always struck me as very odd. Right? Because it is really, and then when I, when I tried to investigate, it was clearly not a colonial usage. It was a very much of a post-colonial usage. Right? So the, 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 we began using the word only since the 70s. And as I say, it is a very conscious move, right, to, to what they call the reorganization of states, right? Uh, so reorganization of states by which all of these areas which were indirectly ruled earlier, the change suddenly didn't happen suddenly in 71, but 71 becomes a crucial moment because of a particular law called the uh, Assam Reorganization uh, Bill, and after which most of the, many of these states uh, uh, become full-fledged states, right? So the Northeast India becomes a kind of a, a kind of a way of governing the region, which is very different. There's something called a Northeast Council, and clearly, Northeast, uh, if you are a member of the Northeast Council, that makes you a state from Northeast India, right? And then, of course, what is interesting about it is the Sikkim, as you know, Sikkim is the eighth state who comes into the picture much later, right? Sikkim's history is very different, as you know. It was one of those Himalayan kingdoms next to Nepal, Bhutan. Right, and it was really not part of India in the sense it was a native state like uh, uh, like Bhutan and Nepal, and and was really uh, annexed by India later. So in two thousand and two, that too was made part of Northeast India. And what is striking about all this is that it is really an organization with national security in mind, right? Meaning, is national security is quite dominant in this kind of organization. Right. After, after all, say one can be one can say very positively that there is a there is an organization called the Department of Northeast Indian Development in Delhi. Right. One one way of looking at it will be good. The government of India spending money on uh, on development of the region. On the other hand, to think that development of this region is mainly a Delhi-based organization is quite remarkable. Right. Because after all, no other place has it. Right. So in that sense, it seems to me that Northeast India then is more just than just a geographical description, right? It is a whole mode of governance, which to me tells us about the Home Ministry's very particular role in governing this region, which after all in post-colonial times is seen exclusively in not through national security lenses, right? I'm always amused by the idea they say of a chicken neck. I'm sure you've heard of that, right? The small area which connects that area, right, is always referred to as a chicken neck. But when you think about it, after all, this is really naturalizing the post-partition geography, right? <laughs> Clearly, naturalizing it entirely through national security lenses. So in some ways, it seems to me that as I try to make sense of this special kind of governance, then it becomes important for me to go beyond just elections and that kind of thing which political scientists do, right? The fact that, say, governors of Northeast Indian states for a long time have been very special kind of appointments, 
often they have been, say, in the military, former retired military officers, retired uh, uh, bureaucrats who are in sensitive fields like intelligence, right? All of that gives me a sense of how this area's governance structure is quite different from large parts of India. So then Northeast India then becomes more than just the category that is used. It becomes a kind of a uh, way of thinking about the political management of the region as being different from rest of India. Absolutely. No, fan, I mean, I, I, w- I, would, I had wanted to highlight some of these concerns, which I will come to later. And at this point, I really want to like tell our listeners uh, a little bit about the book in the sense that, uh, you know, the chapters uh, are organized almost as a read alone chapters. I, so if people are looking forward to reading the book, which I hope they are, uh, you can almost read every chapter on its own, which is a very uh, sort of fantastic way of writing the book as, as well as a reading experience, because every chapter has a sort of an organizing theme, uh, which is very, very legible, which is very, very uh, sort of critical as well in the way it's articulated. And on that point, you know, when you were saying about, when you talking about um, Northeast India as a mode of governance, uh, and I really appreciated the first the inaugurating chapter of the book, which, you know, delves in such great detail about that. And uh, I would love to read sort of the last sentence of, of that chapter, which is not just about Northeast India as a mode of governance, a category of what you call a deliberate policy, but also the directional place name and its derivative, as you say, Northeasterner, and I'm quoting, have endured and gained in Indian popular usage because they do more than just point to a relative geographical location. They stand in for a visual regime of racial profiling and the relation of unequal power. And that's that says so much about even the kinds of conversation you were having prior to this, which was about uh, uh, you know, um, sort of your your own journey as um, your own intellectual journey, but also in terms of the ideas of sort of democracy itself and who deserves it and who doesn't, honestly. Uh, so uh, thank you for saying what you just did. And it gives me a perfect segue to actually ask my next question to you. You know, you were talking about um, the idea of the, the imposition of intellectual actually um, uh, in these sort of, quote-unquote, wastelands or frontier spaces where the, even the colonial state did not really get to uh, and this imperial geography. And, it, you know, in some sense that many occasions in the book, you describe how the force of development, and I, I, I would like to offer you uh, sort of, you know, the space to say that is, is that development also become a stand-in for many other things. But you... You describe how the force of development as an imaginary uh, helps us understand regional politics and perhaps even regional patriotism, the way you put it. And the way you describe it in the book through various examples is also, you know, presented in contrast with the waning force of development as an imaginary in other contexts. For instance, you write about the relationship between Baptist Christianity, Naga Nation and modernity, that is a strong imaginary and political rhetoric. You also direct us towards a force of development thinking among the elites uh, of dominant descent-based groups in various re- regions, which, as you point out, is an ideology of convenience. And this, Im- this imaginary at the same time is also present among actors at the grassroots. So can you please say you know, a little more about this, as in how does the rhetoric of development 
sit in with the demands of autonomy as well as identity as well as sort of uh, re- you know revived demands of of indirect rule or exception to uh, uh, the rule uh, yeah if you could speak a little more about the idea of development as an imagining what the force that it has in the politics of the region well you know i think in this era of climate change uh, it is sort of a all of us need to think about ideas like development right after all, these are really have a powerful, it powerfully captures our imagination, right? How, how can you not be with development? At the same time, the idea that after all, we've been talking the language of development, right? And to figure out the history of this language, right? Human beings didn't always think about development, right? Uh, so, so that in a clearly that the history of it, which anthropologists and others have thought about, becomes very relevant. And when you consider that, Anything you do could be development. You can start schools. You can start a nuclear power. You can have 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 kind of a coal mining. Uh, you can have a, a big installation of the military, uh, or you can have uh, schools in in villages, or you can have a healthcare center in villages. We use the development of almost anything. That clearly it, it, the word becomes almost meaningless, right? So clear, but, but then when you think about it, why does the word survive? After all, we have had you know post-development kind of ideas for a long time. It seems to me that it captures our imagination precisely because we, we really every time you have a new variation of it, right? So when you think about words like say, at one time development was simply growth then it becomes, well, it is not enough. So as a result, you want to think about redistributive development or something. You have words like participatory development. Now we have words like sustainable development, right? And every time, it seems to me, when the word is in crisis, we try to modify it, right? So I generally, independently of my thinking about Northeast India, I think we should be a little cautious about the word and be critical about the word, word, right? Then what is the word doing in Northeast India? Right, then consider this, right? That after all, um, say in many of these, what I had called colonial era indirect rule, uh, in a way, in a, when in the in the in the post colonial form, clearly we don't use a word like indirect rule. We use la- wonderful language like protective discrimination, right? So protective discrimination. So it it it, it evokes certainly a very good thing that you are trying to protect people who are disadvantaged, who would, who would quarrel with that. But then what is missed in the process that they are also colonial era institutions. After all, we all know the 1950 constitution was not all new, right? There was a lot of its continuities from 35, right? So in some ways, really, you have the old excluded areas of 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 the colonial times becoming becoming something different. We call it sixth schedule, but there are huge continuities, right? So then, what do you do with a phenomena like, say, uh, uh, phenomena like uh, people who may be uh, doing the main cultivation of land in an area like Arunachal Pradesh, all have very little rights because they're not from there. Right there, because in the sense that the whole area has an inner line permit, right, uh, and area inner line permit, some are considered more indigenous than others. All of that means that the people who are cultivating may not only be outsiders, so they they can be really people with very little rights. 
So the idea then, so parts, so if you go to those regions, immediately what will struck you is what in rest of India we would call landlordism is almost as if new forms of landlordism is emerging. The fact that all this can emerge within this uh, within this framework of protective discrimination is almost obviously extraordinary, right? Extraordinary, and the idea, my kind of old-fashioned politics would be that clearly we are interested in rights of people. We're interested in the rights of poor people, right? So in some ways, the entire protective language, discrimination language misses out on rights of poor people. So moving now to another area called Meghalaya, think about the fact that there are huge amount of coal mining, right? And generally, when you think of coal mining, the picture that you'll have traditionally is that indigenous people are really exploited by this kind of uh, coal mines. But what will strike you if you look at coal mining in Meghalaya is that it is very different. It's much more democratic mining, if you like, right? Because of the kind of a property regime, uh, in some ways, it need not be the poorest person. But the point is that you really have, if you are indigenous, you really have property rights of a certain kind that a non-indigenous person doesn't. So what is it doing? So I, in a way, think, but the way I'm putting it is that really these were really colonial era uh, uh, area structures and there has been a wonderful business model. Nobody thought in the colonial era these institutions would really be at one day become uh, become uh, become really uh, will become useful for a new business model of a person from outside trying to get coal mines with aligning with a local kind of influential local person who will be tribal, right? So things like that, it seems to me, politically we have avoided and try try to take them on. And, and so then the developmental imaginary, the question you're asking then for me becomes important because that allows this a little bit, right? Because since everything is in the name of development, right? They're clearly, development, who would quarrel with development? So if you don't quarrel with development, you don't see these pictures, right? So my argument is to see these pictures of what will in the old-fashioned way will be exploitation, oppression. Uh, in fact, I would even go further that new forms of sub-citizenship, etc. are emerging in that area precisely because we have not looked at how it, or, uh, indirect rule in post-colonial times, what form it might take. So, uh, and there I think development imaginary plays a very particular role because it suits everybody to say we are on the side of development. Delhi is on the side of development, local elites on the side of development, right? So my, my goal was to, is to bring out the contradictions of development in that area. Hmm. Hmm. No, and, and that is perhaps one of the um, so themes that run through a lot of the chapters, um, uh, because every chapter is so sort of in some sense also its own uh, has its own sensibility. But one of the themes that I did see through running through the book was the force of development as an imaginary and what it allows um, to actually do, like you were saying, and very very interestingly and very sort of perhaps pointedly uh, pointing out uh, inside the, these sort of new forms of, uh, of marginalization that, that emerge within these, uh, within these sort of zones, uh, so to speak. You know, I mean, one cannot uh, think of uh, development and, and democracy, uh, perhaps in the way that the book is written, but also more broadly, without thinking about the concerns around sovereignty and that is perhaps a question I want to ask you now you know 
The book is definitely a broader comment on the articulation of post-colonial sovereignty in general. And given your long-standing engagement with the question, and in this book in particular, whether it is the sort of, you know, case of mobilizing the discourse of pre-colonial sovereignty in Assam, the contradiction of sovereignty under something like the Armed Force Special Powers Act, the Aspa regime as you describe them, or the descriptions of shared sovereignty in Nagaland that you uh, detail for us in the book. I would I would like to use this opportunity for you to, you know, talk about the ambivalence of sovereignty and its avatar in the Northeast in, in, in particular and sort of post-colonial sovereignty in general and what that means for more contemporaneous politics. Uh, I know that is a very broad question. Um, so I'll leave it to your discretion to choose the aspects that you deem significant to talk about. But, but definitely, and I was, I was so struck by your um, description of the Ahom Chronicles and the saga of Lachit Borofukon and the way, you know, that is evoked to um, uh, selectively perhaps mobilize a, a, a kind of pre colonial sovereignty in the current scenario. But these various claims to uh, uh, various claims to his descriptions of various aspirations um, towards sovereignty in the, way, in the way that it becomes such a uh, you know it, it unfolds across so many terrains. Would you would you like to sort of speak uh, speak to those concerns in some detail of your own choosing? Well, I think it's generally a good idea for all of us to really problematize postcolonial sovereignty. Right, because after all, the idea that the state would like to claim it is sovereign in the sense that it controls the entire territory from border to border, right? That, as we know, holds true about very few postcolonial places, right? So clearly, then, it is the state would like to claim it is sovereign, if you like. But on the other hand, if you look at reality over there, in many places you'll find that it is really sovereign in the sense, in the, in the sense of a claim. But since, uh, uh, you know, in, in an area where there is a lot of, lot of Sedeva disorder, an area like Afghanistan, we'll immediately pick that up. We'll call them warlords or something like that, right? But the point is that is extreme. Even in, without, without, uh, even in cases like where you have a really functioning state, fairly well-functioning state, India, after all, is you know, a fairly stable place in, in, in many ways, in, in relative terms. So the fact that there may be areas there within which the sovereignty is a little unclear <laughs> itself is, should, be, is, is, should not be surprising. But, but it is surprising because we, are, we let so much the state's claim to having the total control guide our imagination. Right. So if you don't do that, it seems to me we'll easily find this, uh, find these places which are really state sovereignty is uh, the, whether it is factual or fictional becomes tricky. Right. So in a way, it is not a permanent situation either. So in some ways, then clearly the all excluded areas, if you like, where the real state didn't even exist. To me, it is not accidental that if you think about the Naga imagination, as you, one of my chapters is on the Naga conflict, right? The Naga imagination is always that really their territories are much bigger, right? Than the state of Nagaland, right? They're much bigger. And when you consider that the territories that are part of the Naga imaginary are areas that Curzon would have called kind of areas which are barely under control of the colonial state, 
right? Area merges into Burma where the state barely goes, right? Or, or areas, even, even when you have control, uh, you will consider some areas controlled by primitive tribes, uh, quote-unquote. So apart from really going when there is a real violence to control the violence, the state really wouldn't go very far, right? So think of then what is happening in those, all those areas. Clearly, what, if you go by the state imaginary, we will find everywhere there is, must be an office, there must be a district magistrate, right? But that clearly is, is not what, what happens, right? So in some ways one can say, so post-colonial sovereignty is contested in all kinds of places, more so in an area like Northeast India. Right? So I don't want to give you a general picture because it is different almost in different parts of India, right? Different parts of Northeast India, if you like, right? But I give you the example then of the Nagaland. Since I gave that example, let me say, I find it quite interesting that in the whole Naga conflict, a world word that has come up is shared sovereignty, right? However, I want to insist that I'm not using the word in any analytical sense. I'm using it entirely because the Naga conflict uses the term. Right, uh, the Naga leaders uses this term. Right, not only that. When you go to a place called uh, uh, Dimapur in Nagaland, where there is the uh, uh, camp of the main group called the Naga Socialist National Council, uh, 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 which is really negotiating has been negotiating with the government of India for a long time about the, about Naga peace, they have a camp, and that camp has all the visual looks of a headquarters of a state, right? So, uh, so clearly, the uh, Indian state knows it. They know what they're doing, right? So in some ways, it seems to me that shared sovereignty then becomes a term really where you are really doing some kind of bargaining. So the Naga peace negotiations then are not just happening in the sense of uh, the Indian government talking to these people. They're also things on the ground where, where really these groups have, have actual control right? Actual control, say, think of taxation, right? Clearly, in the ideal situation, we'll, uh, we'll argue, we'll say the more modern state collects taxes. And if, if, if really a private group collects taxes, we generally would, would tend to use like a word like extortion or something like that. But groups in Nagaland gets away by calling it the Naga National Tax, right? So what do you do with something like that? So clearly, the whole shared sovereignty term then is not accidental. Right is part of a political uh, bargaining thing, if you like. Right, we want shared sovereignty in this sense of the term. So textbooks on shared sovereignty wouldn't tell you very much about it. Right, there's very contextual usage that I'm interested in. Right, that's there. Then, since you brought in Assam, etc., then I find quite interesting that, say, uh, you you brought it up. After all, uh, uh, we don't think about the group very much. A group called the United Liberation Front of Assam. Right, uh, the Ulfa is the, is the common term. Uh, so it was uh, the, in the in the official language. It was a major insurgency. The insurgency has come to, uh, come to an end. But I'm interested in these people's imaginary. Right? Clearly, the idea that in pre-colonial times, uh, before British rule of India, uh, the British came to India uh, to that area to Assam in 1826. Right? So before 1826, the particular kingdom that was in that was in power was called the Ahom Kingdom. Right. So symbolism of the Ahom Kingdom then plays a huge role in the in this group, Ulfa's imagination, right? That we are once independent and what we are demanding. So it may be a peripheral group, a, uh, may, may not be an important group in, in the way India, but we look at it, it is already defeated. But it seems to be simply look at this armed conflict as 
in black and white terms, that they are active at a certain time, then they get defeated. Doesn't capture it, right? So in some ways, what is striking to me is more the continuities between what I call institutional politics and politics through other means, right? So then, people who, start, who are people who typically look at these, these issues in terms of, you know, a word like armed conflict or insurgency will tend to think you control a group and that's the end of it. Whereas Northeast India is not that. What I'm emphasizing is the continuity between institutional politics and politics to other means. And which shows up, I'll give you an example then. So even when you'd, you'd expect normally that insurgents are a completely different group from mainstream politicians. But the connections come in in all kinds of forms. For instance, you will find that, well, say somebody is, uh, uh, was in prison in Bangladesh uh, during the insurgency, uh, important leader, and he's released. Then you'll find after his release, even the prime minister of India will take an interest in making sure that he's, uh, he is free, right? What, all the, all the, all, what does all of that tell you? And this is not, not connected to just the, the current prime minister. I would say the earlier prime minister would also do the same. Exactly at the time when United Liberation Front of, Front of Assam was really in, almost defeated, if you like, you had this negotiations in Delhi uh, where they talked to the prime minister, they talked to the home minister. All of that tells me about a story of, very interesting story of contested sovereignty, right? In, 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 in a sense that the state is not total, in total control of the narrative, over symbolism, and the state has to make constant concessions. And then when you bring elections into the picture, it becomes even more interesting. The fact that India is a democracy means that clearly there are enough politically uh, smart people advising prime ministers or chief ministers who knows about the sympathy factor of this person or that person. So somebody may be an insurgent, yet there may be a political sympathy for them, maybe enough that you better make sure that you can really, uh, if you don't really uh, don't try to understand the sympathy, you won't win this election, right? So what what all of that produces obviously is not kind of Afghanistan kind of a situation obviously right nobody's saying that right it's a fairly peaceful situation but of a, a kind of sovereignty which is much more contested than it, than it might seem hmm. Hmm. absolutely no uh, I, I'm 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 uh, I'm very uh, glad that you use the word contested sovereignty because I think that is the sort of default nature of sovereignty is contested so. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, you began by, you opened by saying that, and um, um, uh, and that's really a position that uh, most academics, I mean, anyway, do understand about sovereignty, but especially in the ways in which, uh, you know, post-colonial sovereignty unfolds, like you were just mentioning and describing very, very interestingly, uh, is sort of a default claim, and, and that's wonderful, that's like a great takeaway, <laughs> If, uh, uh, you know, people who are listeners or people who are new sort of to the kinds of politics and regions that we're talking about here uh, um, uh, want to take away something from, from this sort of conversation. So thank you for, for saying that. Um, you know, Dr. Barwa, the last sort of perhaps the last question for today that I have for you, uh, and there's so much more to talk about. Uh, but, you know, I see I see this text as a a very crucial text in some sense to introduce students and scholars to the dilemmas and contradictions of democracy as well as a region to whose concern perhaps institutional academia has arrived somewhat belatedly. And I think it may be useful for our listeners uh, sort of as a, 
you know, as an end note almost, to get a sense from you about the ways in which you see the study of democracy in Asia's borderlands or critical geography, as I like to call it, unfolding. What are the few ways in which the histories of sort of this unfinished business of partition or the long shadow of partition or, um, you know, the ways in which you've already been describing um, on these frontiers, so to speak, need to be reimagined or retold to understand the complex ways in which they are being evoked today? And, you know, what are sort of broad directions do you see it going towards not not only sort of academically, but more sort of, you know, in a sense of a, um, um, as a curious observer, uh, as, as like you've been saying, as in terms of your own intellectual forays, uh, how do you, now that we're in this current scenario where in some sense the nation state's gaze towards the Northeast is perhaps uh, the, the sharpest I've seen in my lifetime, definitely not in yours, um, uh, in very, very uh, interesting ways, not just the nation state, but even like the popular imagination uh, of India as a nation, right? And the book is so remarkably then titled In the Name of the Nation as well. So I wanted you to offer some sort of, you know, comments that we can sort of keep thinking about in terms of how do you see um, uh, these complex stories unfolding and how do you think they need to be sort of also um, reimagined to, to, uh, to, to make sense of what's happening today? Well, let me uh, give an example that I talk about in the book. Uh, a Manipuri civil disobedience person called Iram Sharmila. She was in the news constantly because she was really protest. She protested for 16 years against the Armed Forces Special Powers Act and the well-known hunger strike, right? So the reason I'm bringing her up is because I like to think about people like her as really telling us something, right? After all... What happens, I think, with most of us is that we got used to something. Think about a law like the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, right? It's around. We don't think about it. It doesn't affect everyday life, every, every time, but it's there. But it's called an extraordinary law. So it seems to be the extraordinary security law and nothing going on in North India justifies a security law like that, so extreme, going on for 60 years. Yet, what happens with Indian democracy is that we just get used to it. Right? It seems to me what is interesting is for Iram Sharmila, no respectable democracy should have a law like that. Right? So, in a way, there's a lot to learn from something like that. Right? Because she, in a way, I was such she's a kind of she had a visceral dislike for a law which gives the army so much control in certain situations. Right? And she sees life, every, in people in Manipur related to her. Right? And then think of her story. And later on, when, he con- when she contested election, she got very few votes. So, and she just disappears from the picture. But then I try to interpret this whole episode very differently, right? She really was a, a why does a hero of Manipur, who becomes the really uh, almost personifies Manipur because it, per- it protests against the Armed Forces Special Powers Act for 16 years, gets very few votes when she fights elections, right? The Indian media even used words like she was humiliated. Was she? I doubt it. And another way of thinking would be that, I, that after all, think about say, those of us who study elections. We don't really know why people vote, <laughs> right? Really, voting then is an act which really requires its own anthropology, right? And which may not be universal at all, right? So we idealize the rational voter, if you like, right? But, we, but tell you what is rational voting is different. 
So in some ways, it seems to me I'm more and more convinced, which is that I argue in the concluding chapter, that, that Senate elections in India have become so compromised in that areas. And after all, given the power of the center, elected politicians don't have the kind of prestige and respect. And I would even say that just because you're elected, you're not seen as your representative. As I'm the voter, I don't say as my representative. Because Delhi is so important in resource distribution, uh, clearly uh, elected politicians can also be see, seen as a Delhi's representative, if you like, right? Then you could respect Iram Sharmila so long as she was protesting, but you don't respect the Iram Sharmila who is trying to compromise with this political system, right? If you have that reading then, then Iram Sharmila's losing elections become a, become, a, becomes a case where you see the really how non-legitimate representative institutions may have become in certain parts of uh, parts of India, northeast India. I'm not saying I'm right, but it seems to me this kind of an interpretation deserves a hearing, right? Only then we'll try to understand why you could really have representative institutions yet contest the sovereignty at the same time, right? And unless and after all, people like me are simply interested in that the place is peaceful, people are happy, you know, I'm using very old-fashioned terms, right? Then the question becomes, will there be a kind of a control of the area or political order in the area which will give an average person, say, happiness? I know this is a very idealistic way of putting it, but still, I like to think about issues like that. And I'm quite convinced, unless we listen to those other voices, right, in some ways then, I, it becomes important for me even to understand an insurgent voice, right? Because they're very complex voices. They're not just insurgency is some people's word, right? In some ways, I'm very, very struck by the fact that the people who, start, who really look at security issues in the area, they rarely understand the local language, right? Whereas the entire vocabulary, if you like, of conversation, maybe in Manipuri, maybe in SMEs, and people who write, of, write about security don't know any of those languages, right? They will look at some pamphlets and then become security experts. Once you try to understand them, understand the local local kind of vocabulary in which, which these fights are taking place, you really pick up a whole set of ideas, a democratic imagination, right? So in some ways then, I would say, something like democracy then, after all, we have, I'm quite impressed, I, 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 one, one is democratic, right? But what does it mean to be democratic? So I see the real energy of democracy not coming from from regimes, coming from the street, as it were, from these protesters, from... Politics through other means. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, th thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. I, you know, I, you remind, what you were saying right now just reminds me very, very directly of uh, one of these paragraphs in your final chapter. And perhaps I'll uh, take your permission to read out a few lines from there. Uh, in very direct relationship with what you were just saying is... Um, and I, I'm quoting you here from page 191 of your book from the final chapter, which is to say that to argue that the political interventions of rebel organizations deserve to be taken seriously and that acts of citizenship can be useful, can be a useful analytic through which to approach them is not to endorse the normative claims for redemptive violence that some of these groups might take. There is no clean moral line separating the violence of the oppressor from the violence of the oppressed. And, you know, that is that is definitely a very, very uh, complex, but, uh, but relevant and sort of 
perhaps even urgent um, conversation or deliberation to be had, uh, not not just in the context of what we have been calling the Northeast, but various other such uh, sites of contested sovereignty. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Barwa, for the conversation today. I I have really enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners uh, have too, and I'm sure some of them at least will be tempted to go to the book because it is definitely one of those books which you will come away with knowing a lot of new things, but if definitely and definitely new things in new light. Um, so thank you for being here today with us on New Books Network and uh, I hope you had a good time too. It's been a great pleasure, Bhumika. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>